This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. All right, everybody. Um, you know, sometimes I say that this is a very special episode of Unsupervised Learning, uh, but today, this is a very special episode. Uh, the guests that I have today, I'm actually sitting in the same room with them. I am in a studio, and we are recording this, and I have two guests instead of one, so we have multiple dimensions in which it is special. I am here with uh, Dr. Alex Young of UCLA and Dr. James Lee of University of Minnesota. Um, I've known these guys for a while. I've read their work. Uh, they actually, um, they, they address a lot of the same questions, and they are exploring the same domain, but they come from different educational backgrounds, different disciplinary backgrounds. Uh, James has a, a PhD in, 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 out of psychology, even though he's, he's a behavior geneticist and a psychometrician, and, and Alex is a uh, mathematical geneticist, I would say, statistical geneticist. And he is also looking at some of the same characteristics and traits. And what we're going to be talking about uh, today, um, before I let them introduce themselves more fully, and uh, Alex, you can just talk about your general research and like what you're interested in, and James, you go. Um, we are going to be talking mostly about quantitative genetics uh, and complex traits. And I want to do a deep dive and talk to these guys about this topic because people are interested in this stuff, but they don't often um, enlighten themselves on the foundations of how it works and how the traits that they're so interested in emerge out of complex developmental, genetic, just overall biological process, as well as the environmental inputs that we all know about, right? So um, Alex, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, and then James, you can go. Hi, I'm Alex Young. I'm a statistical geneticist at UCLA. And yeah, as Razib was saying, my background is more in uh, math and statistics. I did my PhD at Oxford in statistical genetics. I also lived and worked in Iceland for a bit with uh, Decode, which got me interested in issues around the genetics of education, which led me to my current role, which is part of the SSGAC, which is Social Science Genetic Association Consortium. So we're interested in outcomes that are relevant for the social sciences, such as education. So that's been one of the, one of the phenotypes that, that we've been focusing on. James. So I'm James Lee. I'm an associate professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota, specializing in behavioral genetics, uh, which I didn't always know I was going to do. Um, I ended up at Harvard, and um, um, they didn't even have behavioral genetics there. Um, but that was okay at the time, because I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to specialize in. Uh, for a while, I actually thought I was interested in AI, interestingly enough. <laughs> but um, it's become very topical. But um, but I've sort of stumbled into genetics, and I pretty quickly realized that at that time, Cambridge, Massachusetts was a good place to be if you're going to be stumbling into those things. Yeah. And um, then I did a postdoc at the National Institutes of Health um, with Carson Chow, um, where uh, we worked together on certain issues in statistical genetics and population genetics. And then I ended up at the University of Minnesota, which is well known for, among other things, uh, all kinds of behavioral genetic studies, including studies of monozygotic twins separated at birth. Yeah, the, so the Minnesota twins, uh, 
mm-hmm. project is pretty well known. I think a lot of the listeners and viewers are going to know about that. Um, so I, I want to start off by kind of um, talking about what we're going to talk about in terms of what it comes out of, and you guys can jump in after I'm done in terms of like if you take issue with it, you know, disagreements fine. Were, were you going to say something? No, you no, good? Okay, no. you're just looking at me. Looking at me, James. Um, so, uh, you know, so we're going to talk about quantitative genetics. And a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in that I talk about is, you know, population genetics. And how do these two differ? They obviously overlap a lot. They've kind of just fused today uh, for various reasons. But I do think that they start at different positions and have different origins. And what I would say with uh, quantitative genetics is, you know, statistical genetics, it comes out of biometry. Um, it's a very empirical field in origin uh, with animal breeding and whatnot, whereas population genetics is basically the fusion of Mendelism uh, with evolutionary biology and, uh, you know, complex, you know, you know, inheritance patterns and whatnot. And so I think of population genetics is more as construction of models which allow you to deduce outcomes and a lot of hypothesis testing. So obviously the most famous one is a Hardy-Weinberg, you know? But, I mean, coalescent, for example, is another model. And so these are these explicit formal models that you manipulate algebraically, you test, and, uh, you know, they give you a range of outcomes that you can see empirically if the outcomes are matched. And, you know, stylized fact is like, Population genetics is, you know, basic evolutionary biology, evolutionary genetics is the study of changing allele frequencies over time. And how do those allele frequencies change based on the parameters in your models, right? So quantitative genetics is somewhat different because uh, I feel that originally, obviously, it was um, gene blind. It was pre-genetic in terms of pre-Mendelian. So, you know, you're talking about correlations between relatives. You're talking about distributions within populations. You're talking about distributions within populations of, say, breeding animals and how you get the best outcome out of that breeding animal. So quantitative genetics uh, traditionally has been uh, a tool within the agricultural genetics tradition. Now, today, it's all a little different because with genomics, it's all kind of fuses together because genetics is genetics fundamentally, even if there are different subdomains and disciplines based on the tools we use, the traditions we come from, the ulti- the, what you're actually studying is, is pretty much the same. And now that we have genomics, we have the total genomic information and we have the computational tools to make the analysis tractable, population and quantitative genetics are kind of fusing uh, through genomics and population genomics. That's the way that I tend to think about it. So today, you know, we're going to be talking about quantitative traits. So that means that we will have in mind uh, polygenic characteristics, for example, uh, complex traits. We have these traits in mind, but uh, fundamentally they go back to Mendelism as well. They go back to the genes and the segregation of individual loci. So their basis is ultimately population genetic as well, even though we're not focusing on that end of the distribution. That's, that's what I would say in terms of what we're talking about and where we're coming at it. Like, what would you guys have to say to that sort of summary? Well, I think... Both fields actually sort of trace back in many ways to R.A. Fisher's paper in 1918, which is what unified Mendelism and Mm -hmm. biometrics. So biometrics traces back to Francis Galton, cousin of Charles Darwin's work, looking at how the heights of offspring correlate with their parents' heights, which is where we get the term regression from. And this was something concerned with the inheritance of phenotypes um, continuous characteristics and all of the statistical methods that were developed mainly by Galton's protege, Carl Pearson. And Fisher in 1918 unified that, that perspective, which was looking at continuous variation, with what had been 
rediscovered in Mendelian genetics about doing crosses of different plants or animals and how discrete traits are inherited based on on these Mendelian factors, which we didn't have the, the modern concept of, of, a, of a gene then. Yeah. Um, so Fisher in 1918 showed how the correlations between relatives that form the basis of biometrics could actually be the result of Mendelian inheritance of many different um, many different alleles across the genome that were segregating independently. So independent alleles could generate continuous variation that had correlations that matched what were being observed in biometrics. And I think that Fisher's perspective there didn't really probably see a real distinction between population and, and quantitative genetics. Yeah. Um, and maybe we're going back to that now. They sort of diverged to some degree because one was more concerned with practical things like how do we breed more profitable cows? <laughs> and the other one was uh, population genetics was, was uh, concerned with sort of longer run, more abstract evolutionary kind of ideas. I, I don't know if you agree, James. Uh, yeah, I actually do. Um, I think you could trace the origins of quantitative genetics to... Ronald Fisher and his pathbreaking 1918 paper, and also papers that came out very soon after by Sewell Wright, addressing similar topics, correlations between relatives and inbreeding and things like that using path analysis. So neither Fisher nor Wright thought of themselves as I'm, I'm this and not that. I'm in this box here. Um, Sewell Wright especially was interested in. Uh, genetics in mammals, uh, uh, physiological genetics, enzymes. Uh, there was nothing in genetics as it existed at the time that he wasn't interested in or working on. Um, but what soon happened was that um, as the subject developed in America, uh, I mean, this is something interesting about the field of genetics as a whole. Um, genetics, I think, is the first science where a lot of its growth and maturation actually occurred in America. Mm -hmm. Like, for example... Well, the, the fly room. The fly room in Columbia. Yes. Right? Uh, okay. Figures like Nettie Stevens and uh, Clarence McClung and uh, uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan. Yeah. Um, and Sewell Wright. And, um, and basically, a lot of these people um, were often working, surprisingly, not at places like Harvard or Columbia, although some did, but often at um, like flagship public universities, Ag actuals. That, yes, didn't Lane Wright didn't to... even have a PhD? I think isn't that right? Uh, that may be. Yeah, <laughs> there was a time when you didn't need to have a PhD. Well, I don't think R. A. Fisher did either. Um, <laughs> did he, did he I don't think R. A. Fisher yeah, did either. Yeah, the, 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 at that time they just sort of just said, just just well, get the can, shit you, done. <laughs> you 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 clearly can do this, so go ahead and and, and do it. Um, That's Doctor Fisher to you. No. <laughs> So, um, so um, like, for example, Walter Sutton, as soon as um, uh, Mendel's discoveries were uh, rediscovered, he immediately, he was a, a guy who I think was at the University of Kansas at the time. Yes. Immediately proposed that, I think, actually, these chromosomes are the carriers of Mendel's hypothetical particles because... They have all the required properties. They come in pairs. They segregate independently, and, and so on. Um, and so the similar thing happened with quantitative genetics. It got really picked up 
but people working in America associated with agriculture. Yeah. Um, Iowa State people. So yes, Jay Lush, who yeah. was introduced to genetics when he was a student at Kansas State. Okay. Uh, then he became a professor at, uh, uh, at the University of Iowa. Um, and he uh, commuted to Chicago, where um, Sewell Wright was a professor at the time. Um, so Sewell Wright was a very theoretical person, and he didn't uh, think of himself as directly working toward anything applied. Um, but Jay Lush, his main interest was animal breeding. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, and so he uh, audited, uh, although he was himself a professor at the time, he audited Sewell Wright's course, um, was kind of mesmerized and inspired, and Wright then became his lifelong hero. Uh, so anyway, he came back to Iowa. He started a program in quantitative genetics there. Um, he was the one who came up with the term, I think, heritability, which mm. maybe we'll talk about more later with yeah, that. Yeah, we means. will. <clears throat> Uh, he was the one who came up with the breeder's equation, although Fisher already freely made use of this concept, clearly. Often Fisher would just assume something and then freely just <laughs> talk about it verbally, and then later someone would make an equation about yeah. it and give it a name. Like, it's actually, like, let's make it, like, yeah. precise instead of just yeah. in your brain, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then... Yeah. So uh, I, I do want to say, we yeah. mentioned the 1918 paper. Um, I will put this in the show notes, but just in case people want to Google this right now, because you know I've read this paper too. It's a great paper. Uh, it's a correlation between relatives on the supposition of Mendelian inheritance. So that's the paper that you're talking about, and those of us in this field or adjacent fields, we all we all know about that. Uh, so let's let's talk about let's talk about um, quantitative traits in general, right? Like so, just like a couple of things, and you guys can add uh, you know what I'm missing. So quantitative traits, obviously, what does that mean? Um, there are certain things that are associated with them right now, and I'm not saying this was all originally associated with them, but so polygenicity, right? So quantitative traits tend to be the outcome of action at many, many genes, right? Uh, many genetic positions. So when people think about genetics, a lot of us, uh, you know, they're originally trained on the Punnett square and a single locus and a dominant and recessive allele, these sorts of things. Well, I mean, that's still a thing in quantitative traits, but now sum it over hundreds of loci, right? Hundreds of genetic positions, possibly thousands of genetic positions. So, you know, we were, the discussion we had before we started recording, between us, we were, like, thinking about this. I mean, you said, um, James, there's 12,000 SNPs associated with height, single nucleotide polymorphisms, right, within the genome. That's, that's a lot of positions. Um, although, you know, there are millions and millions, you know, like 5 million, 6 million SNPs in the average human genome, but we'll, we'll go into those details. So, okay, so there's a lot of genes, not a single gene, there's a lot of genes, okay? So there's not a gene for type 2 diabetes in most people. There's a bunch of genes that affect your risk of having type 2 diabetes or the odds of you developing type 2 diabetes. And, you know, as we're talking about agricultural stuff, uh, you were mentioning how quantitative genetics is really, um, the questions, that the, the topics that it's focused on. Today, complex traits and quantitative genetics, like in terms of disease, is a major, I mean, it's how you get funding, right? Were you saying something, James? No, I wouldn't. Okay. I'm oh, sorry. Just like James, you just like, just give me this look, you know. Um, heritability. You mentioned heritability. And so heritability colloquially uh, makes sense in terms of, okay, from parent to offspring. But we're talking about something very specific here. Um, and there's different types of heritability. Heritability in the narrow sense, heritability in the broad sense. The narrow sense has to do with additive genetic variance, which is the big deal in terms of a lot of what we're going to be talking about. But basically, it just means that what proportion of the variation in the population is due to variation in genes. And heritability is basically associated with the correlation between parent and offspring that's due to the genes. And that's why twin studies and other things work, because identical twins are obviously genetically pretty much the same. 
and uh, monozygotic twins, right? And then you have fraternal twins that are dizygotic that are genetically 50-50, and so if a trait is very heritable, there should be different patterns across these different uh, types of relationships, right? And we will talk more about exploring that with some of the work that you've been doing, uh, you know, that's very sophisticated using genomic methods, right? Um, another thing that I want to mention, uh, you know, the bell curve, uh, like that distribution, the Gaussian distribution, these quantitative traits are often, you know, they're either, you know, they either shake out as like pretty standard Gaussian distributions or I think they, they're converted into some sort of Gaussian distribution. Uh, they tend to have extreme outliers, but there tends to be like, a central tendency in there, and that might have to do with uh, like central limit theorem and whatnot. Maybe we'll get into that later. Um, and to give some examples, um, give some examples to people. Um, height. Height, <laughs> intelligence, um, also like traits where like a lot of um, traits like in late life diseases where you have a risk for something. You can think of it as like a quantitative trait, right? Well, that's that, that's the thing, though. It's a, m most of the time we 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 will like to model things as if they are quantitative traits, even if they're not quantitative trait. It's really just defined at the phenotype level. It's like a continuously varying, quantitatively varying character like height. Uh, but if you think about a disease status, it's like either you have the disease or you don't. So how are you going to model that? And 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 different levels of severity. No, sure, but let's just imagine, yeah. for the sake of argument, you ha you either have a disease or you don't. Yeah. But such a such a disease might actually be affected by thousands of different genetic variants. So it's not like there are simple Mendelian diseases like cystic fibrosis, yes. where either you have the if you have the gene, you have the disease, or you don't have the gene, you don't have the disease. Pretty much, pretty yeah. much. Maybe maybe there's some. Some some qualifications that yeah. need to be made to that. Yeah. But um, for a lot of complex, what we call complex diseases, it's it's sort of like height in that there's thousands of different variants across the genome that can change your risk of say getting type two diabetes. And typically, what we uh -huh. what we do to model that is to say, um, if you if you have s so many of the risk increasing variants compared to the risk de decreasing variants that pushes you above some threshold, then you're gonna have the disease. Yes. And maybe actually we should be measuring, you know, blood sugar or something. And yeah, really yeah, it's yeah. a quantitative thing, but because of the nature of the medical yes. system, even if it really at some fundamental biological level, it is a quantitative thing, we're often measuring it as if it's an either or outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And also, since you're bringing that up, um, you know, another thing, it's not true, I mean, there are probably quantitative traits that's not true, but most of them, most of them I think, there's, kind of, there's an environmental component. Um, so when you're talking about cystic fibrosis, there's not an environmental component of cystic fibrosis. It's a genetic disease where I think, you know, you say the penetrance is 100%, right? If you, if you have, like, the mutations and you carry two copies, you're going to have some problems, okay? Like, that's pretty much guaranteed. Now, type 2 diabetes. People have a risk for type 2 diabetes, but that means it's not guaranteed, no matter what your genetic profile is, usually, right? And so what's going on there? Well, there's environmental factors. So, for example, like if you have a very high sugar diet and you're obese, et cetera, et cetera, those are environmental factors. So when we're talking about heritability, the heritability has a non it, it assumes often a non-heritable component, right, which is due to the environment. And so, the, you, know, you know, obesogenic environments, you know, that's a, that's a term that's used. But obviously, our rate of type 2 diabetes is way higher in a lot of populations today than it was in the past. But the genes are not that different, at least in the last century. 
right? And we know that risk for stuff like type 2 diabetes has been affected, you know, from ancient DNA. It has been affected by evolutionary processes. But really, it's just not been a major disease until relatively recently. But, but that, that brings up an important point about heritability because you can have en environmental factors that change over time and change the mean. So we see that, you know, the mean height has increased um, over the last, say, 200 years in yeah. developed Western countries. And that's probably primarily due to improved nutrition. But at any one point in time, a lot of the variation could be due to genes, even if over time there's a shift in the mean because of a changing yes. overall environment. Yeah, so I mean, like, so so it's not explaining the mean. Heritability yeah. isn't explaining the mean. It's explaining, it's the, explaining the variation yeah, yeah, within exactly, a particular exactly. a particular sample, a particular population. Yeah. So obesity is like a particular that. time. Obesity is yeah. like that. It's a it's a pretty heritable trait. Above fifty percent, like I've seen some estimates of eighty, but like let's ignore the exact value. But it's higher. But what people take from that is it's guaranteed, but it's not. What it means is most of the variation in the population is due to the genes, and there are certain environments that are obesogenic and certain environments that are not. So yeah. obviously, you look at pictures from the 1950s, where all the fat people at? Yeah. You know? But it's just, the genes haven't changed that much, at least in like places like the Midwest and Appalachia, but now they're huge. And yeah. that's just because the environmental component... Yes, you know, this is like norm of reaction stuff for you guys out there. I mean, I mean, think there's some geneticists out there. Yes, we are talking about norms of reaction, you know? So it's like your genes express in a certain environmental context. That environmental context can change, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine if you put people in a calorically starved hunter-gatherer environment, then the, the genetic effects on their body weight could be quite different, right? Yeah, the aesthetic like, effects, they'd be shredded. <laughs> they would be shredded, yeah. I'm like, what's that? Let's go. <laughs> um, so wait, James. Um, I'm gonna go on to some other question, but I, I want to bring you into this because you are the uh, you're the psychologist here, um, and I, I don't mean that pejoratively. <laughs> like you're literally the psychologist, yeah. you know. I know um, what you meant. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, we're talking about height, okay? But mm -hmm. like, let's like brass tacks. Like, let's let's move it to intelligence and stuff like that, and these environments and the Flynn effect. Um, I mean, look, I know you could go for hours, and we do have hours, but we don't want to talk just about IQ, no matter what you guys want. You know, I know, I know some of you out there are like, no, keep them going. But, you know, um, our environments have been changing, the Flynn effect, the IQ has been raising. Like, how do you explain it to, you know, I don't know, your students, in terms of how the environment is interacting with the genes to explain these changes in IQ and the variation of the population? Because with, with height, it's easy. It's like he just said, like, you know, calorie deprivation, these sorts of things. Like, what is the calorie deprivation for intelligence? Well, there's something kind of mysterious, if you think about it, the, about the increase in height. Um, so back when uh, Pearson and um, all these people we mentioned earlier were measuring height back in the late 19th century, uh, they found that it was almost perfectly normally distributed. And it is today. Um, if you look at data from Swedish or Scandinavian conscripts, uh, all men, all the same age, 18 or whatever, Again, almost perfectly normally distributed, um, which kind of means that even though Scandinavians are a lot taller than they were 100 years ago, 150 years ago, that means that you know everyone moved up by the same amount. Yeah. The shortest person moved up by the same amount. Yeah. The medium person moved up by the same amount. The tallest person moved up by the same amount. Oh, weird. Or else has the, the has shape would not have. Has there not been an increase in variance? Um, I don't know about that, yeah. but um, I do know that these um, biometricians we mentioned earlier did measure the variance in height because they were kind of interested. Something made them wonder maybe the variance is changing from one generation to the next. And 
within the limits of the data they collected, I think they found that, um, no, the variance was not changing at that time, as it's not changing today, as far as you can tell. So that's kind of strange, because um, you might think that a long time ago, uh, there were some people who ate well. Um, I mean, even in 19th century English good, novels, good king. they kind of <laughs> assumed that as rich people grew older, yeah. they grew fatter because yeah. they were eating so much. But um, uh, And that um, the people at the top would not benefit so much from these improvements in nutrition, whereas that the people who were not so tall would benefit more. Mm -hmm. Um, but the fact that the shape of the distribution of height, how many people are at mm -hmm. this height and how many people are at this height and how many people are at that height, has not changed to the, to the eyeball over this t amount of time. And in that paper by Fisher that we mentioned in 1918, um, he estimated the narrow sense heritability of height, that's roughly how genetic is height, to be about like 73% or something, and then he added some dominant stuff, which maybe we could talk about later. Yeah, but, well, we will talk about it. We got time. But, um, but the thing is, that's pretty close to what we estimate the heritability of height to be today, yeah. using whatever, paranospring regressions or uh, methods that Alex has devised. Um, um, so that implies that a kind of similar thing to what I was talking about, that the causes of what causes some people to be tall relative to the average height at their time, to be short relative to the average height of their time, are pretty much working the same way now as they did 100 years ago. Yeah, even in a very different environment. Yeah. So if you ask, why are some people tall or short relative to what is considered average today, all this is basically saying that the answers to that question are the same as they were today as they were 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm which is kind of strange because it implies that whatever causes the average height to increase works basically the same on everyone in the population. Yeah. That yeah. is, uh, everyone gets bumped up by a constant amount. Yeah. And the causes of what, of the dispersion it's around like the average. It's not a non-linear system. Yeah. And, you know, so yeah. you're saying like it's, it's pretty simple. And that's, but I mean, but I was at, but wait, you were saying something? No, I was just going to say, I thought there was some evidence. if you think evidence, about that, that is kind of weird. I thought yeah. there was some evidence, though, that the class difference in male heights is smaller mm. now than it was in like the 19th century. I mean, in the U.S.? Because in, um, in the U.S., there were, we never no, had a famine. No, the U.S., the U.S. were... Yeah, we never had a famine. By, the, this Famous, famously, the the U.S. soldiers that came over to Europe in like World War One were like way taller yeah. and healthier than like the yeah, British they were, soldiers. There were giants, and, yeah, giants walking. Fed on all this yeah. Midwestern corn. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, I thought is that not is that not contradicting to some degree what you said? If the gap has shrunk between like the social classes, would that imply that the mean has shifted up more in the lower classes than it has in the upper classes? Um, I would guess that if we had data going back that far to like um, the early 19th century, yeah, we would see some like conspicuous differences between classes. I think there was and something some, on that in one of Greg Clark's books, actually. Which we'll get to. We'll get, we'll yeah. get to Greg. Yeah. <laughs> like, like table that. Yeah. All right, table about that. Greg table Clark, that. We're about Greg. But I asked you about IQ. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you? So you so, you asked you answered a different question, sir. <laughs> so the thing is that. Um, People have asked uh, about the Flynn effect that, um, as far as we know, uh, the data might not be as extensive as for height, 
uh, these things like uh, the variance in height, I, uh, the variance in IQ. I mean, it's a little tricky to ask the question, what is the variance in IQ? Because it's not like we measure it with a physical unit. But, um, but as far as we can tell, all these things, um, how spread apart are people in IQ from the average? What is the heritability of IQ? Uh, these things have all uh, stayed the same as far as we can tell. All right. I mean, there's a paper in PNAS from the 1930s by uh, Barbara Burks. Uh, she estimated the heritability IQ to be 0.75, uh, which is almost exactly the same as what we got from the Minnesota study of twins reared apart. What year, uh, did, what year was that published? I Minnesota? think it was 1938. Okay. And that oh. was a correlation between um, identical twins raised apart, was it? Um, I think it was an adoption study, but not of twins. Um, okay. It was comparing adoptees to biological families, something like that. And... Um, and so, um, what I tell people, uh, what I tell students in my class, for example, is that that's kind of strange because it implies that um, you know, it wasn't like some people got helped more than others by changes in the environment, whether those are changes in nutrition or uh, vaccination or antibiotics or education. It seems like everybody is sort of being bumped up by a constant amount. Um, yeah. Uh, but then I point out, well, if you think that's implausible, well, it looks like at least over the past hundred years, something similar has also hap been happening with height. Yeah. Mm. And so there's sort of just strangeness all around. Okay. Um, but if you can buy it for height, maybe you can buy it for IQ. But sort of like saying that yeah. secular trends are more important than differences within a particular time yeah. between different groups. Um, yeah, it could be. Uh, I think... Like changes in technology or changes in general social policies or something could be more important than uh, one particular group in 1930s environment versus another. Yeah. So it's, it's like the time that's varying as opposed to class at a particular time yeah. that you're implying. Right? Because like instead of spatial or socioeconomic heterogeneity, what matters is like, you know, you know, what, what year it is. Or... What year it is is the number one variable that's explaining these secular trends. Okay, so... We'll, we'll, we'll loop back to some of this. I want to jump into a little bit more um, an abstract topic. So, you know, we're talking about quantitative traits, these continuous traits with these distributions. Um, how do they come about? Um, there's, a lot, there's models out there, and, you know, I think these models are actually pretty cool. I, I want to know what you guys think about it. So, like, you know, there's, there's types of models that... So th there's variation that's segregating within these populations. Where does the variation come from? Okay, ultimately the variation is from mutation. Okay, assume there's no migration, just to make it simple. So the variation is for mutation. Now, that variation is going to be um, removed by uh, two primary factors, right? Drift, so in a finite population, there's going to be sample variance generation to generation. Really small population, the drift is going to be big. Drift tends to remove variation by, you know, things go extinct, okay, in drift, stylized fact, right? Uh, selection, most of the time, removes variation as well. Uh, positive, negative selection, you know, what's positive selection in one locus or one allele is negative selection for the other one. And so, you know, if there's bad mutation or if the environment changes and, you know, you need like different alleles in different combinations, optimized fitness, that's removing variation. So you have this, uh, oh, you want, you want, do you want to jump in on that? 
No, I wasn't received. I was okay. just mumbling to myself. But okay, the, you know, <laughs> this is like, I got, like, we're doing this live here, guys, so, you know, bear with us, but it's like, because James, James is like, he's a little inscrutable, he's got these thoughts, and I'm always like, oh, what's he, is he like thinking like I'm saying something stupid, you know? <laughs> well, I think that's what's going on. I promise you I'm not. <laughs> well, Alice is always just smiling, so I'm just like, yeah, like, I can be saying whatever, and he's like smiling at me. <laughs> Anyway, but so <laughs> we have this Gaussian distribution. We have this distribution, um, and the variation, the variance in the distribution is input by the is input by the um, mutations. The variance is removed by selection and drift. And then we also have um, stabilizing selection, presumably, which is so type of balancing selection uh, that makes it so the midpoint value has you know higher fitness, right? But they're still going to be like extreme outliers segregating out. I mean, I think in some ways, um, in terms of fitness, I think um, height can be kind of modeled that way. It's not like a total. The fitness like curve is not like totally normal. But at a certain height, at a certain like really really high height, uh, your fitness starts to decrease. And obviously, if you're very short, your fitness is also going to decrease. It varies for men and women. Yes, I think, yes. Where the optimum is. Yeah. But if you control the sex, yeah. Uh, for men, I think it's like above six three. It kind of starts. Basically, your body actually does start breaking down above six three. So that's like no matter how sexy you are, <laughs> you know. Um, but and then obviously, like short men got nothing to live for. Um, you know, it's just you know, it's just the truth. Um, you know, I'm shorter than average, so I get to say that. You know. Uh, but uh, and then with women, I don't think. I think with women, there's really tall women, like, sometimes have issues, obviously. I think it's, like, women can get quite short before they start to show any problems in terms of being able to acquire a mate. But set that aside, um, I do think they start having pregnancy issues because they're too small. But whatever. Uh, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy has talked about that. Like, bigger women tend to miscarry less, and, you know, they also go through the pregnancy uh, better, right? Okay, so um, we're talking about all of this stuff with... Uh, the distribution and, and and how it's being affected, um, and uh, yeah. So I mean, what do you guys think about that in terms of uh, you know? And there are some models out there where the variance and the mean value is maintained by stabilizing selection and stuff like that. So just to, just to be concrete about that, um, I mean, I think stabilizing selection is a thing, but like I really don't get what's going on intuitively nearly as well as with the other factors here, just to be clear. I mean, I'm just gonna put my cards on the table. Like stabilizing selection a lot of time is like sexual selection, uh, where it's like, yeah, I believe it exists, but like I don't really, a lot of times it's almost like a Jesus machina for me. Um, it's like, you don't know what's going on, so you say, oh, it's stabilizing selection, you know? I don't know. With drift, mutation, and like, you know, negative and positive selection, it makes sense to me. What do you guys think about what I just said there? Well, um, well stabilizing selection is like what you just said, that, um it's not like uh, our classic picture of natural selection, which is like, um, you know, the giraffes reach, uh, their necks get longer so they can eat the leaves from higher up. Um, actually, that's not true. It seems like <laughs> giraffes' necks get longer because of sexual selection. But anyway, uh, that, 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 that's sort of the idea, right? That evolution wants some trait to go in a certain direction, so it goes in that direction. Whereas stabilizing selection, the idea is that there's some optimum, like mm -hmm. it's better not to be too tall or to be too short. And so therefore people who are average height tend to be of uh, the highest fitness. That is, they're the best at surviving, reproducing. Yeah. Um, I think something where some people might have trouble uh, remembering from high school biology is that stabilizing selection is a force that tends to 
remove genetic variation from the population. Um, that might be a little counterintuitive because maybe in AP biology you learned that, well, for the sickle cell trait, um, uh, it's best to sort of be at the, 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 the middle, which is the heterozygous, which is like, well, you have one copy of the sickle cell allele, but then you have one copy of the normal yeah, allele. Yeah, overdominance. Because then um, um, the sickle cell trait in the blood cells actually protects against falcopyrin malaria. Uh, whereas if you have two copies of the sickle cell allele, um, well, then your blood is just not working, and then uh, that's not good either. Yeah. But that intuition doesn't actually carry over to uh, quantitative genetics or quantitative traits. Okay, so it's not just me. Yeah, it turns out that um, once you have a trait that's affected mm -hmm. by, say, more than five, so the sickle cell trait is this kind of non-quantitative so, trait. Yeah, you can't do over. One. You can't do overdominance. Like it, the segregation load is too high. That's what you're getting at, right? Um, slightly different point. Okay. Uh, which is that if a trait is like height, where it's affected by not one site in the genome, but by thousands. Yeah. Uh, now it's no longer the case that natural selection wants two alleles at any given site to stay in the population. Mm -hmm. Now at every single site, it tends to drive out one allele. Mm -hmm. um, the, the reason for that, I guess one way to intuitively put it is that whatever the optimal height is, say it's 5'9 for men, 5'10, whatever. Um, the optimal height for men uh, is our height. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but go on. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, there's always a way, there's multiple ways to get that mm -hmm. by like uh, stacking up pluses and minuses yeah. to sort of cancel out to hit whatever the optimum is. Yeah. And so genetic um, architecture. So, um, uh, so basically, natural selection can always go for that optimal genotype by fixing one plus uh, at one site, fixing one minus, a minus at another, mm -hmm. and all these fixations, so to speak, cancel out to hit the optimum height. Mm. Um, and suppose that genotype is fixed in the population, then any further mutations affecting uh, height are penalized. Okay. Okay. Um, so in fact, um, Fisher recognized this. Um, uh, so he talked about this very question we're discussing now. Uh, what maintains quantitative genetic variation mm -hmm. when there's all these forces operating, drift, mutation, uh, selection. And he said, well, let's imagine that there's a mutation affecting height that has an effect of 1 40th of an inch per um, enhancing allele. Okay. Which is actually pretty prescient because the latest GWAS of height, which you were discussing, uh, an effect of 1 40th of an inch is like, I don't know, maybe at the uh, 75th, 80th percentile of... Mm -hmm. Of the effects of the top 12,000 you were mentioning. Yeah. Um, so it's amazing how he just plucks these numbers out of, out of the air, and they happen to be right. But, um, and so what Fisher said is that any mutation like that that enters the population actually faces counter-selection, um, because basically because natural selection doesn't want there to be variability in height. Uh, it wants everyone to be the same height, basically. The optimum height. Yeah, the optimum mm -hmm. height. And so any mu new mutations that enter the population affecting height are creating variation around that optimum, and so it wants, selection wants to get rid of them. Yeah. But basically, he pointed out that if um, the effect is really 140th of an inch in height, uh, the selection will be weak enough where it can drift up to some appreciable yeah. frequency. So the, dri the drift is... And those are basically the things that today we're picking up in GWAS. So you think... So, you think, yeah. so what you're saying is yeah. the variance around height 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, just for the viewer listener out there, like you have like a normal distribution, normalish distribution. Mm-hmm. So you have like most people like within like X interval, like uh, one standard deviation, seventy yeah. percent, right? Yeah. Um, but like all of the outliers are due to just like noise, stochastic noise. And so, what do you say about that? What do you think? Um, You're not smiling anymore, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think that's right. <laughs> but anyway, it, I think the so so. There's whatever variation is segregating in the population. So that's like the process that James was talking about. So, you know, the, the, the mutations that have a very large effect on height, they're going to be the ones that are penalized most by selection. Yeah. So they'll be kept at a low frequency. Yeah, we don't see that many And they don't, most of the variation we see in height is not generated, probably at least, by those very rare variations. Except you have some exceptions where... You know, there are these uh, monogenic forms of dwarfism or something. So if you if you sample yeah, but that's, a lot that's of people, a, that's but... a whole different category, right? Well, I don't know if it's a whole different. I don't know if it's a whole different category. Like I think it's sort of the extreme end of the large effect mutations, and and they and yeah. they do have a large fitness. If Peter pen. Dinklage is listening. We're talking about you, bro. Yeah. Um, so most of most of the variation that we see, genetic variation that we see causing height variation in the population, that's not going to be due to these large effect mutations that are kept at low frequency by selection and most of these are going to be the relatively weak effects that selection has not been able to to the weak effect mutation selection hasn't been able to prune out and this this actually brings me on to this this problem of missing heritability which i think is is, it's an important problem for to discuss given all the all the topics we're discussing today so genome-wide association studies They've been looking at these common variations. So when you have a common variation in the population, that means that selection hasn't removed whatever the less common version of that variant is. Mm -hmm. So that means they're unlikely to have these large effects. And what what we've been interrogating with our genomic studies over like the past 10 years, we've only been able to detect those relatively weak effect loci. So there's still this sort of open question which relates to these models that James was talking about, about stabilizing selection, mutation selection balance. Are we capturing all of the genetic variation that we need to to really capture all of the genetic effects on height? Mm -hmm. Or do we need to go to the the rare mutations that have large effects? So that's that's one of the big open questions at the minute. And, And the degree to which the things that we're missing are important, a lot of that is actually an outcome of the, the parameters of this kind of selection model that, that James is talking about. Like, how tight is that selection? Yeah. If that selection is really tight around, or has been over the past however many thousands of years, if that selection has been really tight over the past however many thousand years, then it's possible that a lot of the heritability, a lot of the genetic effects are contained within the rare variants because yeah. anything with an appreciable effect has just not been allowed to, yeah. to, to rise to a frequency where we can measure it with the standard technologies that we've okay. been using. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. pull this out back to genomics real quickly because we under, I understand what you're, believe it or not, I understand what you're saying. But uh, uh, so, you know, when you read a genomics paper, uh, guys, um, you know, they, they do this basically like, you know, I don't even know if it's housekeeping, but it's just like kind of counting, okay? They count the alleles, and so it's like, oh, an average individual has like, you know, like 
5.5 million or whatever uh, differences from the you know consensus reference panel. Those are your single nucleotide polymorphisms. A proportion of that, many millions of that, uh, are common, quote unquote. Like they're found in appreciable frequencies across one or you know many populations usually, but sometimes you know within one population. Um, and then you know so there's different uh, levels and scales of the frequency. So there are alleles, there are variations. Uh, of these millions of SNPs, and I'm, we're focusing on SNPs. There's other types of variants. Yes, I know that, but like, let's focus on SNPs because it makes it easier. And it's most of the variants probably anyway. Okay, so we have these SNPs. Uh, there's a proportion uh, that's like distributed all across human populations. Probably it dates back to Africa. You know, the out of Africa population and the, its predecessors within Africa. You know, the coalescence. It goes back, I think, like three, four hundred thousand years. So most of it's shared. Okay, um, and then you have uh, stuff that's restricted to one population or a geographical region. So that's probably a mutation that drifted up or was selected uh, relatively recently, but not so recently that it couldn't have spread. And then you have mutations that are private to your own family, and then you have a small number of mutations that are private to you due to de novo mutation. Like, I mean, what, what is the estimate of the de novo mutation rate expected per generation right now? I think it's around 70 to 80 per individual. Okay, is that, Depending on the is that what you remember? That roughly, yeah, roughly yeah. correct, yep. Yeah. Okay, because I, I, I remember something around like 50, but that could be, I haven't kept track of the literature. So 70 to 80 is probably a better counting. You know, probably a better like mutation count. Okay, so you have 70 to 80 that are unique to you out of your millions, out of three billion base pairs, right? So just like mm -hmm. keep that in perspective uh, out there. So as we do whole genome sequencing, so, um, you know, okay, hundred years ago, we didn't even have any like genetic markers, you know, like really like no molecular markers. Now we have the position where, you know, I've been whole genome sequenced at a 30x coverage, which basically means like, really, really high quality. Um, and uh, yeah, like, you know, I have a VCF file and all that, all that good stuff. And so eventually we'll have uh, billions and billions of people probably sequenced within the next, I don't know, 30, 40 years. Uh, just being, I think, and that's being conservative. And that's why, um, you know, so my startup, some of you guys know, like, this is the reason why I started the startup, because this needs to be stored, needs to be managed, needs to be analyzed, right? So it's just like part of what, what needs to happen. Um, and there's been this debate about whether rare variants have a huge effect. I think maybe that might differ based on the trait. You know? mm -hmm. So I think, like for example, autism. I think there's some evidence that some forms of autism are affected by low, low frequency but large effect alleles more than other forms of autism, which is high, autism is highly irritable, 80% last I checked. Is that right? Do you guys remember that? Is that the number? Roughly, yeah. Yeah, 80%. So it's very heritable. Mm -hmm. Autism and schizophrenia out there, they're very heritable. People are always shocked. They're both like around 80%. People are shocked because this is a, quote, psychological characteristic, and, you know, those shouldn't be super heritable, but they're really heritable. What were you saying? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, that fits with what I was saying, and there, a lot of it depends on the fitness penalty. So variants that cause childhood diseases tend to be incredibly rare because if you get really sick when you're a child and maybe even it's a fatal disease then you're unlikely to pass on on your genes to, to the next generation so if if the genetic variants affecting some trait tend to have a large fitness penalty then we're going to expect that most of the heritability is actually contained in these these rare variants because selection is it's trying to basically stop there being any genetic variation, mm -hmm. and that's why everything is kept super rare. Anything that has a big effect that comes into the population through mutation is kept super rare. Okay, so this is this is like um, this is like not in the notes because we we got an outline people. We did the prep work, you know. But um, I, I have a question because I'm I'm thinking about this right now. Okay, imagine um, we could like select 
So we're talking about height. And we select women that are 5'5". Five, five. They're all exactly 5'5". Five, five. And there's, there's got to be millions and millions of women, like hundreds of millions of women out there. You know what I'm saying? That, so whatever, we have a large population. There's no bottleneck issue here. Mm-hmm. And men who are 5'11", or 6 feet, let's say 6 feet. Mm-hmm. Women that are 5'5", five, five, men who are, because like women like men that are about 6 inches taller than them. So we have like these pairs. We have this population. And so they have F1s, like they have offspring, right? There's still going to be variants in the offspring, right? And some of it is due to non-genetic effects, but some of it is just going to be due to like Mendelian segregation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the variance due to that. But the variance is going to be considerably lower than what we previously had, correct? Like people are get yeah. to five five and five six or five five and six foot in different ways, but it's still going to be the allele frequencies are still going to be considerably shifted from the regular population. Correct? Um, like, are we going to have the same standard deviation? Like, this is not a pop quiz, guys, but it kind of is. I'm just wondering. <laughs> is the variance going to be the same in their F1s from the selected population as the general population? Like, my intuition is no. It should be lower. Yeah, that's correct. Um, if you really did that, you said, well, you know, only guys who are six feet and not exactly. uh, a fraction of an inch yeah, taller yeah, yeah. or shorter. And yeah. same with there the still will be a lot of yeah. genetic variation left, yeah. though. There still will be, yes. If it yeah. was the case, which it isn't, that every height has its own variant, and then you yeah. like yeah. you only get that variant. Yeah. But it's not like that. It's like all the men, out of all the men that are six feet, there's, it's, there's an in, almost infinite number of possible ways of being around yeah, six foot. Some people are six feet because yeah. some environmental thing. Yeah. And some people, it's just, you know, so and that's why there's going to be, like, noise. And, but and you are like, going to reduce some of the variation. Yeah, so you're going to yeah, reduce yeah. some of the variation. I just want to, I want to get here on that. So we're going to talk about variance really quickly. Um, I, want to, I want to talk about variance because we've been talking about variance. Like, most of you can look up, like, how variance is calculated. Just, like, the variation of the population, right? It's a particular formula and then, like, square of the variance, like, standard deviation, right? So standard deviation is easy to talk about because whatever. Like, this, the units are easy. Because they're normal units, they're not you know squared. But okay, um, additive genetic variance. Um, like you explain what additive genetic variance is, because this is it's super variance. important. Additive genetic variance is super important. I guess the way I would explain that is that um, well, I mean, I, you as James Lee for the people out there who do not recognize his distinctive voice. So, I guess the way I would explain that. Um, th- 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 well, when I talk about genetics to certain audiences of um, other academics, um, and we will put something up on a slide or on the blackboard that says the trade is equal to, you just add up how many uh, alleles you have at this SNP, and you then you add up how many alleles you have at this SNP, and then it's just this like equation like uh, your trade is equal to this plus this plus this. This very simple additive model, which means we just add. So yeah, I mean, I think of it almost as a linear model. Yeah, oh, you call it additive, linear. Um, and so certain audiences will object and say, well, is it really like that? Uh, that, that, that? That has to be way too simple, doesn't it? I mean, don't genes um, interact in complicated ways? Um, can't one gene product like connect to the gene product of something else? And then they, um, and you have to know exactly both of those two genes in order to predict what will happen and so on. Um, and so the answer to that question is, yeah, that's true. There are all these uh, interactions between different uh, parts of the genome. Uh, this is called epistasis. Um, 
uh, or nonlinearity. Sometimes in genetics we have a specialized term. Yeah, this for is statistical like, epistasis for you molecular geneticists out yeah. there. We are talking about something different, okay? Yeah. But um, but additive genetic variance just basically refers to um, well, even if something is not given by like the simple adding up kind of equation, a linear equation. What is the best linear equation you could fit to um, all the different data points? So in our case, we can talk about um, different possible genomes that occur in the population. And we imagine that if we had like 100 clones or, or twins or whatever of a certain genotype uh, that has like this allele here, this allele here, this allele here. Um, they're all related to each other in some complicated nonlinear way because of all these statistical interactions between different proteins and so on. Yep. But say you just tried, you just fit the best additive equation you can. Um, and how much of all those different um, true genetic values, so to speak, could be captured by this best linear equation that you could try to fit to it? And that variance that you capture is called the additive genetic variance. Okay. Well, would you yeah. agree, would you agree with that? Yes. Yes, I, I I do agree with that. I think it's it's important this distinction between like most of the time when people hear this term interaction, they yeah. think about like a mechanistic interaction, yeah. like two billiard yeah. board balls like hitting into each other. Yeah. But that's not really what we mean statistically by the non-additive part of the genetic variance. That's like what's left after you build a. It would be nice for modeling purposes if we just add up everything. Like, yeah. that would be great. It's like super simple. But then what's left after we build that best model, that's what you call the non-additive component, basically. Yeah, and, then, yeah. and there's dominance. And yeah. dominance, most people know from the Punnett squares and stuff like that. There's dominance variance, and that matters a lot for, like, siblings, right? And can you, but can you explain why, um, why, why is dominance less important, say, for evolution or breeding? Well, dominance can matter for siblings because, so dominance is when you have an interaction between the allele you inherit from the mother and the allele you inherit from the father. And when you're looking at the correlations between a random pair in the population, it's very unlikely that they're sharing ancestry both on the maternal and the paternal line, which would only happen in certain highly inbred kind of populations. So siblings, because they have the same mother and the same father, they share ancestry from both the maternal and paternal sides. And that's why the dominant, a, a, recess, a recessive or a dominant effect, which is like when you have this interaction, uh, that can cause siblings to be more similar than you'd expect just from the additive model. But that kind of shared ancestry on both maternal and paternal lines is quite rare in most human populations, at least. Yeah, And it's also not that accessible to selection selection is basically looking at like additive effects it's like if i change the frequency in in this allele a bit then how does the mean in this mm -hmm. trait shift and how does that correlate then yeah. with your fitness and well also i like to think about it in terms of like let's say like um you're seeing a bunch of cows you want big cows and you select the bigger cows and like if there's like massive dominance effects in size uh it could be that some of the big cows you select are heterozygous and some of them are homozygous for bigness, and so it's like they're not going to breed true in the exact same way. It was an additive effect. The underlying genetic values yeah. 
directly map onto phenotypic values. So when you select onto phenotype, you're selecting onto a, a genotype you already know. Whereas if there's a lot of dominance effects out there, mm. um, well, I mean, you don't you know. You have to match the, the, mo the mother and the father yeah, basically to yeah. create this interaction. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. So there's stuff that's going on that you don't necessarily know if you're just doing naive selection. That's why, you know, animal breeding genomics is, is kind of becoming a thing. Well, I mean, here's how I like to explain why, um, like, I'm talking to economists or something about, well, why do we care about this additive genetic variance? Is it just because we can't, we can't do machine learning in uh, GWAS because of privacy and multiple cohorts? And my answer is no. We actually consider the additive genetic variance to be not something we settle on because we can't do something more complicated, but something we care about in its own right. And, and the reason is because of uh, what you were alluding to in terms of uh, livestock genetics or in evolutionary theory. It's essentially that additive genetic variance is the only thing that contributes to enduring evolutionary change. Yeah. Um, like, for example, in our, uh, the Minnesota study of twins reared apart, we would often observe these bizarre coincidences between these twins who had been separated at birth. In the monozygotic twins, not the dizygotic twins. In the monozygotic twins, we would often find that even though they had been separated at birth and perhaps had never even met until as adults, uh, we had pairs of twins who would go into the same job. They would both become firemen or they would both become owners of bodybuilding gyms. Um, so there was one set of twins who were, we called them the firemen twins, in fact, uh, where they had this one phenotype that they shared in common where they both like to drink their beer can, I think it was the same brand, uh, the same way, where they would hold it like this, not letting their pinky touch the can, <laughs> and then they would chug it in like, you know, seven seconds or less. <laughs> and so, um, so okay, so... This is why you listen to a podcast and don't read a scientific paper, you know? <laughs> you know what? We can't get this stuff into the scientific <laughs> journals because the referees are like, that, that we don't believe that. <laughs> but but we, can, we can say it out here. Yeah. Um... <laughs> But suppose that, that that phenotype is caused genetically. Um, I mean, we should maybe try to formalize this, like count these weird phenotypes, but um, assuming it's kind of true, our rough impression is that these bizarre coincidences, so to speak, they sometimes happen for the monozygotic twins, but they don't happen in the dizygotic twins root apart. Mm. Um, that's probably because this is due to these non-additive, non-linear effects. Mm. Like, in order to have this particular beer-chugging phenotype, you got to have all of these sites all across the genome that affect things like the shape of your hand and what is comfortable for your hand and uh, the geometry of your throat, perhaps. Can yeah. you, I mean, we know that some people I got, can chug. I got, I got to put beer chugging chug, phenotype. But, other, but others can't, right? I got to put beer chugging phenotype into the show notes, okay? Uh, I just got to put it because like, people need to know what they're getting into. And taste receptors, like whether you even like beer um, or certain brands of beer. But who doesn't like beer? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> So maybe suppose that it depends on like a hundred alleles scattered across the genome and you have to have all of them or else it's, it's, it's broken up and then you don't exa exhibit this exact phenotype. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that you're, um, well, minus the, the, the very tiny possibility of a disruption by mutation or something. We know that like, even monozygotic twins differ by like five, seven mutations, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, with high probability, your monozygotic twin will have exactly that, that high-dimensional uh, genotype at all those hundred SNPs or a thousand SNPs, however yeah. many you need to have to have exactly that phenotype. Yeah, yeah. But what is the probability that your son, say, 
will inherit that that multi-snip genotype. It's a lot lower. I mean, it's basically like, um, say it depends on 100, uh, it's basically uh, uh, a half to the power of 100. Yeah. And you can quickly get to numbers so small that um, yeah, it won't be reduced. they're like, uh, the reciprocal is not, it's dwarfed by the number of protons in the observable universe or something like that. Um, so basically, if natural selection wants that beer-drinking phenotype to take over the population, it just can't do it. Yeah. But isn't that, uh, yeah. isn't that why Seal Wright had this theory, the shifting balance theory, that he thought you needed these small populations that would be more like related, yeah. they'd share more alleles, and therefore you could have selection acting on these kind of like combinations. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's exactly why. Yeah. Um, so we were talking earlier about the close association between uh, quantitative genetics and agriculture in America, and Britain too, actually. Um, what happened in Britain was that there were severe food shortages during World War II that led to rationing that I think lasted until the 50s, actually. Yeah, my dad was born still in rationing. Oh, well, there you go. 53. And yeah. so in Britain, it was realized that, hey, we need to um, amp up agricultural production. Uh, and that's actually why the research program in quantitative genetics associated with people like Alan Robertson, Douglas Falconer, William Hill, got started up at the University of Edinburgh, mm -hmm. and they were just plied with money because this was prioritized, and yeah. they didn't have to teach if they didn't want to and things okay. like that. Um, so anyway, uh, in America, back in America, Sewell Wright worked closely with the Department of Agriculture, as did Jay Lush, and Wright got the impression, based on the cattle data that he was working with for the Department of Agriculture, that just selecting the, 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 the cattle who, who yielded the most milk or had the best beef or whatever didn't lead to the most improvement. Um, and he wondered, well, why would that be? Uh, and then he stumbled upon this. He thought, well, maybe there's just epistasis, this mm -hmm. nonlinearity, non-additivity we're talking mm. about. Yeah. Uh, the best cow is basically like a guy who likes to chug his beer without <laughs> letting his pinky touch the can and doing it okay. in seven seconds or less. Kobe beef. They yeah. do chug beer, though. Just just put that there, you know? <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, they do. They, the Wagyu... They get massaged, they chug beef. I think that's an environmental effect. <laughs> yeah, <that> <laughs> okay, there's one last question in this section, and then we're gonna like uh, we're gonna move on to something else. So let's try to wrap this up quickly. Okay. So Sewell Wright thought, well, what if natural selection wanted that phenotype to be fixed? How would it do it? Yeah. Uh, and I then get. he came up with this shifting balance theory. Yeah. Which is, I think, what um, scientists nowadays would call stochastic optimization. Okay. Where you allow your optimizer to be kind of random. And so, how's it gonna find like the best point uh, when the way to the best point is impeded by all these non-additivities and non-linearities, so you can't just like do this simple hill climbing? Yeah. Well, the idea is you let your, your search be kind of random, um, and then once it gets close to what is really the best peak out of all this landscape that has all these local optima, local peaks, uh, then the fact that it is that the, the, the gradient, the, the slope is the steepest there, will sort of let it overcome the inherent randomness that allowed you to find that place in the first place, and then you'll get to the top. Okay, so... Um, um, by the way, this theory is not widely accepted today, I, but yeah, it, it, it's I, I, historically no, is very important. Not part yeah. of my, this is not part of the notes, but I will say, like, um, if you guys, uh, if anyone's curious about Sewell Wright, Read Will Provine's book about him. I think it's like Sewell Wright. Is it Natural Selection or? But it's like the big Sewell Wright, uh, like you know, intellectual biography. It's pretty clear in that book, according to Provine, 
the Sewell Wright was not totally clear in his own head mm-hmm. about like the shifting balance in a lot of ways. Like he could not figure out what the axes on some of his old notes were. So, you know, originally it was it was stochastic like drift, and then later it was epistasis and. You know, there's like the z-axis, and he's like, "What is the z-axis, and how does it work with space?" Anyway, there's like a whole chapter about it, and um, I there's still some benefit probably out of Wright's thinking there, but Wright himself never really moved that thought to the point where it was totally coherent in his head. You know, so I just I'm just gonna put that out there. Um, yeah, okay. So we've been we've been talking about um, added genetic variants, and you know, this is something that we need to get at. Uh, there, you know. Over our uh, over our lifetimes, uh, uh, which you know has a ver- there's variance in our lifetimes, but we don't need to get into that. Um, uh, there has been like discussions about whether the additive genetic variance is actually that big of a deal, and is this is is this you know I think what people have thought is it's kind of like the economist um, that's looking for the key or whatever underneath the lamp, because you know that's where the light is. You know, is there all of this stuff going on? All of these nonlinear interaction effects, and actually we don't really understand what's going on, and it's mysterious. Uh, but um, now we have genomics uh, and other, you know, various methodologies to explore this. And is additive genetic variance is these are these linear effects really the the primary um, driver of variation? And of the phenomenon that we see of continuous variation in quantitative trace and complex trace, like Alex, you go. It appears that there actually are. So I I wrote a, a chunk of my uh, PhD thesis on on this topic of whether whether the variance is mainly additive or not. And I kind of wanted it not to be additive because interactions are kind of sexy or cool or whatever. Yeah. But uh, it's yes, it, it, yeah it <laughs> it appears that that's not the case. And it's not intuitive. It's not obviously intuitive why you should be be able to model everything just by like adding up the effects of counting things and adding up their effects across the genome as if they're completely independent. From the perspective of biology, as we're saying, it's not obvious. But as we were discussing before, in terms of these selection models, what selection is doing is it's constraining genetic variation. It's weeding out the mutations that have a large effect and you can think about an organism as this very complex system that develops and a mutation that has a large effect is like having a having a majorly sort of deviating that developmental path so to speak mm-hmm. and that kind of effect might well not be additive but those are kept at very low frequency by selection so most of the variation we see in the population are just very small perturbations at the level of changing like how much a particular gene is translated into a protein. These are very small perturbations, most of the variation that's segregating in the population. And because they're such small perturbations, they're actually well approximated by linear functions. So that's why I think that most of the variance is additive. And this fits with the empirical work because we've done a lot of People have done a lot of work looking for these non-additive effects, yeah. and there's not really much there. Yeah. There is some there, there's something there, but it's not. it doesn't look like it's a major statistical explanation it's for variation. Yeah, it's, it's not, not most of the signal. And we do actually see this phenomenon in breeding depression. So when people's parents are related, we would say that they're 
they might have some higher level of inbreeding than, than the average. And what that means is that they're more likely to inherit the same copies of some rare, potentially harmful yeah. genetic variant. And that can have an impact through what we call like a recessive effect. So you get two copies of a harmful variant that, say, knocks out the function of a gene. Then you don't have any working copies of that gene. That could have a large effect on something like your height or your intelligence. And we do actually see evidence for that. We see evidence that people, the more related people's parents are, you see this, this downward trend in the yeah. mean for, for schooling, for height. Um, and that shows that there must be some non-additive effects at the levels, level of the biology, the level yeah. of the proteins. But because most people are, don't have that level of inbreeding, it doesn't yeah. really contribute to the variation much in the population. Yeah, so so I, I guess what you're saying, like, let me just like, restate it and correct me if I'm yeah. saying it's wrong. It's like, okay, like, there could be recessive deleterious effects, but if they're very low frequency, so rare, it doesn't so matter relevant. because most people, it's masked in the vast majority of population. It only comes to the fore when your parents are related. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that's why you see the inbreeding depression. But, you know, in an outbred population, it just, it does not it's literally... statistically irrelevant. Yeah, it literally does not, like, yeah. factor into the equation. Like, yeah. it just does not. Like, what do you think about what Alex said, James? Uh... Yeah, I, I agree completely with that, and um, and it's a nice point that um, because things with large effects are penalized by selection because of stabilizing selection, and also probably because of they have side effects on other traits that are mm. probably usually bad. Uh, we also have a technical term for that, pleiotropy. Um, so pleiotropy, just, just jump in, pleiotropy, you got a single gene and it has like multi multitudinous effects around it, right? So yeah. whereas like polygenic is like multiple genes that are going towards an outcome of a single trait. Just think about it that way. So basically, um, the things that um, are at high frequency and contribute to genetic variation pass through this filter that tends to favor s things with smaller effects. Um, and... Uh, and when you have all these perturbations that are small, um, it becomes more reasonable to think that they basically don't interact with each other. Yeah. I, I tick the system a little bit like this. Uh, it doesn't matter whether I tick it a little bit like somewhere else. Yeah. I can basically just cons consider them in isolation and add them up if I need to. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, I do want to say really quickly, um, when you're talking about additive genetic variants, you know, like, epistatic variants can convert to additive genetic variants, like, you know, depending on the allele frequencies changing. There's models mm. out there. People mm. can read these papers. They're super weird. I think they're cool, but, mm. you know, like, you go through some sort of bottleneck or selection event, and then the variance goes from epistatic, the interaction effect, to additive genetic variants. So we're talking about things that are the statistical outcome mm. of complex molecular biological processes that are affected through interactions of real concrete yeah. molecules that are variable, right? And as you change their frequencies and the interaction, what might happen there can actually change in very like interesting ways. Yeah, that's that's a good point because basically you need things often to be a high frequency to have this interaction component of yes. variance be non-negligible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but this is why it's kind of like a not intuitive thing that people, even within the field, people are often like confused about this, I think, because it's it's a statistical concept that people map intuitively onto a mechanistic or yes, biological and concept. And so I'll give a quick story. This is like, you know, um, when I was in graduate school, 
I TA'd a course uh, for a woman who was a molecular biologist. And this is at UC Davis, and there is a genetics major there. And there are people that take population genetics courses that are undergraduates, okay? And uh, she had um, uh, an answer for epistasis, or a question for epistasis, and the answer was a molecular answer, and most of the teaching assistants were not from a genetics background, or at least like they didn't have a population genetics background, and they were marking kids wrong that were answering the statistical epistasis answer. And so literally, like literally, as the millennials would say, 25% of the students in this 400 student course uh, got a wrong answer that was a right answer. And it caused, ha she immediately caved. She immediately understood what the problem was. She hadn't bothered to think about it because she's a molecular biologist, you know? And so, mm -hmm. you know, these little things, <laughs> they, they can crop up. Um, I want to talk about um, estimating heritability because um, it's a big deal. You've been, this is like a big thing with your career where, uh, you know, you've, you know, revise some things up, right? Um, so heritability, just to review, you know, heritability in the narrow sense with additive genetic variance is just the proportion of the variance that is additive, right? Um, and it's just, you know, the slope of the regression line is how Galton did it with the regression of the offspring on the parents, okay? So this is just a concept that's out there um, and it's super important for selection, breeding, and prediction, right? Um, and, you know, stylized fact is like, it's not a stylized fact, it's a fact. Um, heritability estimates for height in developed societies in the West have traditionally been like 80 to 90%, which is 89% of the variance is uh, within, or is, is genetic. And I think the correlation between parents, the correlation between siblings and parents and offspring is like 0.5. Is that right? Around uh, yeah. yeah, 0.5 to Pearson's correlation, yeah. right? It's 0.5. Okay, just for you guys out there yeah. who want numbers. Okay, so you had a downward estimate in your, you know, in some of your work. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. how did that happen? Like, let's talk about, like, um, let's talk about indirect genetic effects and direct genetic effects, okay? Like, I know this is nerdy, but this is cool. This is cool. Well, so there, there may be somewhat different things, maybe. But, so, while I was in Iceland, I became interested in this concept of indirect genetic effects, which was being developed by my postdoc supervisor, Orgi Kong. And that is, the idea behind that is that the, the genes of your parents can affect you through the environment so say your your father has a gene that made him get more education then it might affect your education through your father having a higher level of education and income and encouraging you or providing resources for you yeah. to get education so that's the concept of indirect genetic effects and that can lead to biases in the ways that people are estimating heritability using genetic data however it's not obvious that those kind of effects cause a bias in what has traditionally been seen as the gold standard for estimation of heritability, which is twin studies, which James is much more the expert on than, than me. But the basic idea, well, uh, do you want to explain the basic idea of estimating heritability of twins first? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Because oh. we alluded to it. Like, yeah. You know. Well, so monozygotic twins or identical twins um, are pretty much genetically identical. They have the same genomes. Um, whereas dizygotic twins, that is fraternal twins, are basically like ordinary siblings who happen to be conceived at the same time. Uh, and so basically, um, that means that dizygotic twins are actually genetically different from each other. Um, for example, um, a parent has two genes at every site, uh, one from his own mother and father, 
when it comes time to become a parent himself, he passes on a randomly selected member of that pair to each of his offspring. The next offspring might get a different uh, randomly chosen member of the pair, and that's why dizygotic twins and ordinary brothers and sisters differ from each other genetically. Mm -hmm. Although they're still more genetically similar than two random people that you pluck off the street. Yeah. So the twin method, basically the classical twin method, not twins reared apart, but here we're studying most twins who are reared together by their own parents. Um, we assume that anything in the environment that makes people more similar is the same for monozygotic or dizygotic twins. That is, we assume that it's not the case that monozygotic twins live in more similar environments than dizygotic twins. And so basically what the classical twin method does is, I guess the way you can put it is you subtract the resemblance between dizygotic twins from the resemblance from, uh, between monozygotic twins. And if they really live in similar levels of uh, environmental resemblance, that'll subtract anything in the environment that causes the twins to be similar. Uh, what's left will be things that cause them to be similar that are genetic. And then you basically multiply that by two to get an estimate of heritability. That is, uh, what's the fraction of the individual differences in the population that are caused by genetic differences? Okay. Yeah. So that's basically the the, the so-called classical twin method or the falconer twin method, as sometimes called. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, there's other methods now that utilize genomics mm -hmm. that utilize variation within family. So you know, with identical twins. In theory, um, we knew who was identical and who wasn't, although it turns out there's a little bit of ambiguity there, but like, let's just set that aside, right? Um, and, you know, decades ago, there were no molecular markers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're saying that, um, you know, siblings are 50%, you know, their you know, relatedness is 50%, they share 50% of their genes IBD, um, and so, you know, we have that assumption identical twins are 100%. These are the assumptions we make. The identical twin, there's no variance. They're 100%, basically, aside from the few of the mutations that we're talking about. Um, with the siblings, though, there's variation within the siblings. We didn't know, though. right? We didn't know. The variation is just due to you know, you know, recombination and, and segregation and all those things. I think the standard deviation is about 3%. Uh, 4%. Huh? 4%. Is it 4%? I think so, Because yeah. I have, like, two siblings. Their relatedness is 41%. So, right, you know, right. that's, that's pretty low. It's on the lower end. Yeah. So standard yeah, deviation is, is like 4%, so that means 70% are between 46 and 54. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and then, you know, we can go out into like the 30s maybe even. Okay. Yeah, you can, yeah, but it's rare. They're rare. But, yeah. you know, we're going to have the sample sizes someday. Yeah. You know, next, yeah. next year in Jerusalem, we will have the sample sizes, you know, but anyway, mm -hmm. I mean, like, we're, we're, we're hoping for it. But, um, so can you talk about heritability? Uh, in that context of looking at genomic populations of, of siblings, like how, do you, how does that work? Yeah, so in, in 2006, Peter Vischer, who's a very prominent statistical quantitative geneticist. Vischer is, by the way, the Dutch form of Fisher. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was meant to be. Nominative determinism. <laughs> um, he came up with this very clever idea, which is leveraging this variation in similarity, genetic similarity between siblings to estimate heritability. So as James was saying, it's sort of like a random coin toss, whether you inherit one or the other copy of each allele from both your mother and your father. And this is due to the random segregation of genetic material during meiosis. So this random segregation of genetic material is independent 
of all these things that you might worry about when estimating heritability, like how do we really know we're controlling for environment, whatever. But here we're using, to borrow Paige Harden's phrase, the genetic lottery. It's like a lottery, whether you get this or that copy from your mother and the mother and father, and your sibling has an independent draw from that lottery. And then you can look how similar this sibling pair is, how correlated their traits are. Then you can take another sibling pair and say they're less related, and you can see their traits are less similar. And you can build essentially a slope, a slope that relates the phenotypic similarity of siblings to their genetic similarity or genetic relatedness, where all of that variation you're using is due to this random within family segregation of genetic material. So this provides an alternate way to estimate heritability to the traditional twin study, but you have to have the genetic data on the siblings because that's the only way you can measure what we call the realized relatedness. So typically we say siblings are related 0.5, but that's like an average. Yeah. We need the and we can infer that from the pedigree. We know that we know their parents. But if you want to estimate the realized relatedness, you actually need genetic data on the siblings and you can look how similar are they actually genetically. So this method could it could be argued it makes let fewer assumptions than than the classical twin design so you could say maybe it gives you a more robust estimate maybe not everyone would agree with me there but i would probably make that argument however the the issue with that method is that it it, it really requires like hundreds of thousands of genotype sibling pairs to get a precise estimate of heritability yeah. so while i was in iceland i developed a generalization of this approach that generalizes it not to, just to sibling pairs, but to any pair within a population, provided you have genetic information on the parents. Mm -hmm. So we're using the random variation in genetic material in one family and in another family. You can also use the sibs as well, which is, in that case is the same family. But you're at the same, in the same way, using this random segregation variance due to, due to meiosis, due to the production of sperm and eggs, to estimate heritability. And by using all pairs within a population sample, such as I had access to through the decode data, Icelandic data, you can get a pretty precise estimate of heritability. And when I did that, one of the estimates I got was for height, and my estimate was like 55%, with a fairly small standard error. And that was a lot lower than twin, twin estimates, which are usually in the range of like 0.7 to 0.9. Um, so there's still sort of a bit of controversy um, about why. Why is there this gap? Some people argue it's overestimation of heritability by twin studies, which could be because some of the assumptions about shared environment are incorrect. Or it could be that twin estimates actually, they're picking up some of this non-additive, these non-additive effects that, that um, the population-based samples are not. With, like my method is using the, the more distantly related pairs, which mm -hmm. aren't sharing these these non-additive effects. So all the variance of the additive. Yeah, so all the variance that my method is picking up is basically additive, whereas the SIB, the SIB version basically estimates what we call the broad sense heritability, which is like the total um, heritability, including these non-additive effects. Mm -hmm. uh, so the sibling, just using the siblings should give something... Uh, really good in theory, but we just don't have enough SIBs. Well, maybe we do now if we actually gathered all the data together from around the world, but uh, it hasn't been done yet. Um, so, 
yeah, there's there's still a bit of an open question there about why there is this gap and that relates to this missing heritability problem I was talking about earlier. Like, if the heritability is actually lower, then maybe there's less missing heritability. But uh, one of the, one of the other possible explanations for why my method is giving a lower lower estimate is rare variants. These mm -hmm. these rare variants of large effect, like we were talking about before. So if selection has been really strong and a lot of the heritability actually resides in these super rare mutations that have large effects, then my method might miss might have missed some of those effects. So, so there's th these two sort of competing explanations for missing heritability. Uh, they're not actually mutually exclusive. They can both be true. They can both contribute to explaining what we talk about when we talk about missing heritability, which is this gap between what we think is the heritability based on studying twins and what we're able to estimate what we're able to explain using the genomic data that we've been mm -hmm. using for, for genetic association studies. And one is that it's these rare variants that we haven't been capturing well with our technology. And the other is that the heritability is actually lower. And my sense is that it's probably a, a bit of both, but and maybe also a bit of non-additive stuff, which yeah. is a very unsatisfactory answer. But Hey, the truth, the truth isn't about satisfying us. So I want to I wanna talk about something uh, related to heritability, and then maybe this will allow us to segue into um, the Clark thing, okay? Yeah. Greg Clark's paper. Um, we're talking about assortative mating. But before I get to that, just one minor thing I want to add in just so that people know this, because I think it's an interesting, fun fact. Um, so, you know, people often are curious. So there's a famous seed oil experiment in quantitative genetics, seed oil yield. And uh, the mean value of the final generation was many, many standard deviations away from the mean value of the original generation mm -hmm. to the point where like the extreme outliers in the original generation are lower than the mean value in the final generation. And so how can this happen if the mutation rate is too low, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because like, where is this variation coming from? How is this working? And we were talking about like allele frequencies and all this stuff. And this is the issue. Um, as you're doing, as you're engaging in selection on these polygenic traits, the allele frequencies are changing to the point where, in the final generation, you have genetic combinations that did not exist in the original generations because the allele frequencies were initially too low. So, in a whole alternative constellation of alleles are now at a much higher frequency, as you have much different combination uh, potentials out there. And so, I think you know people need to think about this in terms of it's not just. Um, the variation across all these loci, it's the frequency in the population that really matters a lot, and that's shaping a lot of what's going on. Now, um, within the population, we're talking about heritability estimates. Um, if there's assortative mating, and this is what I remember from the Falconer book, uh, uh, assortative mating increases heritability, right? Um, and, yeah, basically. There are models where it might actually not do that with the indirect, with indirect effects okay. and or vertical transmission, cultural transmission. Yes. but. But it, it, it definitely increases genetic value. So you, you can imagine everyone has the, their sort of genetic value, which yeah. is like the prediction from this linear model, yeah. so to speak, of the causal genetic effects. Assortative mating, uh, that increases the variance of that because it induces correlations between trade-increasing alleles in the father and trade-increasing alleles in the mother. So in the next yeah. generation, the trade-increasing alleles have a positive correlation. Yeah. The trade-decreasing alleles also have a positive correlation. So that's inflating yeah. the variation of the, of the prediction. Yeah, and uh, in terms of uh, uh, assortative mating, just to define it for the listeners and viewers out there, uh, I think you guys kind of get it from the context, but basically, you know, you could assortatively mate, like you're mating your cousin. Okay, that's the whole genome. 
But traditionally, when we think about assortative mating, and again, this is from animal breeding contexts and other things like that, or like social contexts where tall people marry tall people, you're looking at a specific characteristic, a quantitative trait usually, uh, and the correlation between the mates, or the, the mates tend to be closer in value than in a random breeding population, right? So tall people with tall people, short people with short people, and this is creating kind of, um, I don't know the easiest, it's not much any multimodality, but it's creating like clumpiness in the distribution out there. It's not. I think it can actually create multimodality when yeah. you have only a small number, like one. Imagine a trade that's determined by one locus. One yeah, okay, that, yeah, by definition. Yeah, then that you would end create, up with just so basically we want, two populations yeah. that are homozygous. So we're, we're creating, you know, we're creating like a smooth. We're creating like a smooth like Gaussian distribution in this random mating population, but if the assortative mating, if the if it just changes in one generation and the assortative mating is really strong on, I don't know, height, you could imagine I think some sort of multimodality, right? No, I, I don't know. I think it's too polygenic for that. Is it? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Um, okay, yeah, that's like twelve thousand I mean, so That's too much. Yeah. I'm wrong, people. <laughs> so basically, the, the central limit theorem says, you mentioned this earlier, um, if you add up a bunch of things uh, and they're all uncorrelated, um, you'll get something, the sum. The sum of all those things will be yeah. normally distributed. Um, basically, what the theorem means is that um, if you're adding up a bunch of things and no single thing makes a big contribution to the overall sum, yeah, the thing will be normally distributed. Um, so the versions of the central limit theorem that are easiest to prove say that all the things you're adding up are uncorrelated. Yeah. Mm. So the first coin flip, uh, it has an outcome, but I can't use that to predict the outcome of the next coin flip. Yeah. Um, however, the central limit theorem is still correctly predicts the outcome, which is a normally distributed sum, even if there are weak correlations between things. Yeah. Mm. Um, it'll be, it'll get broken, and you'll have some weird non-normal multimodal distribution if there are strong correlations because if there are strong correlations that basically means that you're not adding up a bunch of independent things yeah yeah yeah. i know the outcome of the first thing and since there are strong correlations so i know the, i know the, i know the rest of the outcome uh, yeah, yeah so the conditional probability it's not independent probabilities now um yeah, yeah. but okay. um okay. but fisher actually devoted most of his 1918 paper to assortative mating and he calculated all kinds of things like well, how much deviations from Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium, uh, how much linkage disequilibrium is induced by it? Yeah, Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium P squared plus 2PQ plus Q squared, you guys know that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, uh, linkage disequilibrium just means um, correlations between different sites. Across, across the loci. And basically, the answer to all this is that um, if the trait is highly polygenic and um, basically the correlations between different pairs of SNPs, uh, or whatever you want to call them, factors, yeah. loci, are low enough that the total genetic value, the total trait, is still basically like um, uh, adding up a bunch of components where um, if I know one component, I still can't predict the other components. And so it is still basically adding up a bunch of different things, Yeah, enough to keep the trait normally distributed. Okay. Okay, so uh, okay, before we go to Clark. And the proof is in the pudding, right? Okay. The observed height, and it is yeah. like the prototypical example of a normally distributed. Yeah, trait. it is. And, like, there, but there is some Actually, I once had a statistics professor who was talking about the central limit theorem and normal distributions, and he actually stopped his lecture and started wondering, but why is height normally distributed? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> this is the content you guys come from. It's like, but that's great. That's 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 what an academic should do. Like, wait, wait, wait. Um, what? <laughs> this was actually Augie Kong's uh, PhD student, Jun Liu, but um, oh yeah, famous for MCMC and stuff <laughs> yeah, like that. But yeah. um, <laughs> and the only time I actually ever dropped some knowledge in that class, it was a hard class. Was like I raised my hand and I explained why. <laughs> but, wait, uh, okay. So know, uh, um, I want to before we get to the Greg Clark paper in PNAS and. You know, try to keep the content on this um, pretty evergreen, but this is this is topical. You know, Alex in particular, you've been talking about it, but you were involved in that paper in some ways, right? Oh yes. So uh, yeah, you had a comment. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, we'll, we'll, so PNAS we'll, asked me to write a commentary. Yeah. The so so, we'll, so. We'll, we'll get to that um, really quickly. I want to just like outline a model here and just like tell me what you guys think. All right. So you have um, so you have like normal. You have a normal distribution on a trait. And so stylized fact is like if there's really, really strong selection, there shouldn't be that much variation. So you have a normal distribution on a trait. It's, it's highly heritable. Uh, it's polygenic. You know, there could be like some selection effects, but really um, there's a lot of random genetic drift that's like maintaining the variance. And so you have a population that's in mutation selection drift balance. The population separates and then starts bifurcating. Um, and then so you have like a bunch of these normally distributed uh, traits in a bunch of different populations, right? Um, if drift is a major factor, will they start drifting off each other's mean? Right? Because, like, Northern Europeans are taller than Southern Europeans. Maybe it's selection, maybe it's not. But we see, like, differences in quantitative traits across populations. Mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of people try to create selection narratives. Mm -hmm. Why, like, different stabilizing selections creating different mean optimums. Maybe that's true. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's just random. Yeah. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Well, um... People have studied what happens to phenotypes in different populations if they're just drifting. And the answer is that um, like the difference between two populations will follow this process called Brownian motion, which yeah. just means mm -hmm. that um, the difference in between the height averages of the two populations will just fluctuate up and down like a stock price and could potentially, just by sheer chance, become big. The, the difference. Yeah. Yep. So, so the difference so between the, just the difference so if between two populations the originally started at average height of five six or something. Yeah, and they split apart and they end up living in different continents. If there's no selection and it's just random drift affecting these two feet, uh, height or whatever it is, it is possible. That's not guaranteed, but it's possible that um, one population could become five ten, and the other could become five two just through. Uh, depends, the so-called Brownian motion depends yep. on the population sizes, right? Of the two. Yes, it's so more like you have if small smaller, populations, yeah. then mm -hmm. these random forces are yep. stronger, and you can have more variation just due yeah. to random. Yep. Very, yeah, random. But I think uh, the reason why this is treated as well, maybe it's a no model to reject if we can, if we have the data, but it's not something we believe really happens. That average phenotypes just drift apart. Mm -hmm is because in the fossil record, we often don't see things like that ever happening. In fact, we often tend to see the opposite, which is like you have a long time series of fossils spread out over tens or or even in yeah, some cases, okay. uh, like horseshoe crabs or something, um, million, hundreds of millions of years. I got what you're saying. There's some sort of stabilizing and they selection. Look, they look pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, so this, this, um, now we're getting to evolutionary biology, Eldridge and Gould and... Yes, you know. this was in fact the very observation that prompted Eldridge and yeah, yeah. to say, well... So basically they think yeah. that there's like stabilizing selection that keeps... The, and, and then there's yeah. like a jump at some point. Yeah. yeah. And so basically the paleontological record and actual measurements of things that people were able to do a long time ago, like yeah. birth weight, and they found that 
the highest birth weight babies and the lowest birth weight babies tend to do the worst. It seems yeah. best to be in the middle somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But um, birth weight varies across human populations. It's a massive issue. Like, both of us are of Asiatic extraction, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like a ma- it was a major issue when, when I was younger that, um, you know, there are a lot of Asian Americans all of a sudden and the birth weights were lower. And pediatricians were like, oh, it's a high-risk baby. And right. it turned out they weren't a high-risk baby. It's just... They hadn't, didn't have the right norm. Yeah, Asians yeah. just like, give birth to smaller babies, I guess. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's just, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, my babies are of half Asiatic, or my children. They're not babies anymore. And they're definitely bigger than I I mean, I was... Both, be, all, of, all of me and my siblings, we were all... And I'm not, like, the biggest guy, but still, like... Uh, we were all, like, between, like, 6'6 um, six, six and 6'10 six, pounds. Mm-hmm. And my kids are all between 8 and 10 like, it's like eight, nine, ten, you know? And, you know, I think his mother has a big effect. My mother, the, the, their mother is not, you know, she's European heritage. So, anyway, just like little things like that. So, I don't know. That's kind of like a, a sidelight. We got to talk about Clark. Okay, we got to get into this. Uh, Gregory Clark, um, um, the man of the, uh, of the, um, I was going to say Twitter, but. <laughs> He's on Twitter now, he is. <laughs> I know, but, yeah. it's, but it's not Twitter. Uh, X, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the man of the X hour. <laughs> okay, so um, I don't know who wants to do it. Like, talk about the... You know, Gregory Clark wrote a book, uh, The Sun Also Rises, um, which has some of the empirical data, but not this sort of uh, model of uh, intergenerational persistence and social status. Um, I think like, I'll give you guys like an empirical fact that I remember from his book. Like Something like 10% of the officers in the British uh, army have Norman surnames, hmm. which is a thousand years like after... Montgomery. Huh? Old, yeah, old, yeah, 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 like Monty, Montgomery. Yep. But so, but I mean, this is a thousand years after it was a 100%. Yep. And so from that, he calculated the decay, which very, very slow. Because 10% is still a lot, because Normans are less than 1%. Norman surnames are, surnames are less than 1%. Mm-hmm. So they're really, really overrepresented in the British Army, okay? Which, and they were the military class, you know, yeah. by definition. Um, many, many, many generations ago. Okay, so, you know, Greg um, is giving evidence, empirical evidence, that uh, there's a lot more heritability of social status than people think. And, you know, there's empirical evidence in other people's papers, like, oh, like, the, the rich families in Florence in 1450 are still way more the rich families in Florence or in Tuscany in 2020 than they should be based on, you know, naive, intuitive models of, you know, the Chinese say three generations up, three generations down, mm. you know? Um, so it's a lot less noisy than people thought. Um, Alex, do you, want, do you want to outline Greg's paper, and then we can talk about, like, the criticisms and what's going on here? Um, sure. Uh, so Greg's paper is basically the outcome of him having collected a genealogical database of people with rare surnames from... 1600 to 2022 that's that's right isn't yeah. it james yeah yep. um so the the basic logic of the study is to look at the correlations between relatives so if you have like a family sharing a rare surname you can figure out the pedigree and you can say oh this person uh, this is like the cousin of that person it's a cousin once removed or second cousin and you can compute the correlations for these phenotypes that he's managed to piece together from various records, for example, uh, records of entrance into universities, which for most of that time period, there was only Oxford and Cambridge, I think, 
Durham probably entered the scene, and that was sometime in the 19th century. But most of the period, most of the time period, there were only two universities, and they have very good records, so you can tell whether people went to university. So higher education is one. Literacy by whether people were able to sign their name on marriage records, what occupations they had, um, their wealth, what was written in their wills, and from all these different measures of social status, you can then extract estimates of heritability by applying this model developed by R. Ray Fisher, actually in the 1918 paper that we keep going back to. It shows you so much of what we do was actually contained in that one paper from R. Ray right, Fisher you know, in 1918. The R. A. Fisher yeah. podcast, <laughs> the Fisher Fisher podcast. But yeah. go on. So, so this this model is basically says that there's genetic transmission. So there's Mendelian inheritance from parents to offspring. So that means one half of the father's genome and one half of the mother's genome is passed down to the offspring. And you also have a sort of mating. So you have very, what he finds actually is very strong correlations between the parents for these, these traits relating to social status or the underlying true social status of the parents. And the combination of those two factors gives a prediction for how these correlations change for different classes of relatives. And what Clark finds, and I have to admit, I was shocked when I saw, I saw this, is this simple model, it basically has two parameters. One is like the strength of the sort of mating, and one is the heritability. This two-parameter model fits almost perfectly these correlations derived from hundreds of years of um, pedigree data. Yeah. <laughs> this is England, and um, I want to say that... Uh, I mean, I haven't talked to Greg about it recently, but he says that um, the persistence, you know, the decay in social status is, it's a similar statistic across societies from what he's seen. So yes, this is English data because that's where the data is. But I mean, I think his intuition is this is a generalizable finding. Mm. Um, that if you had the data from China, for example, you would find the same statistic if you had the data from India, if you had the data from the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera, the rest of Europe. Um, you know, you'd have the same finding, right? Um, so, like, I mean, uh, James, you, you saw the paper, I think, before it was published. Like, what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, my thoughts are similar to Alex's. Um, I listened to Greg present this work at conferences, and, um, and yes, it's just amazing that uh, first, uh, first the sheer scale of the labor that was involved to assemble these data uh, I mean, he has other projects where, he, I mean, he has data sets with millions of people now, but uh, for this one that he just published, um, there are more than 400,000 people um, spread out over the four centuries that he examines, uh, and how they were able to scrape together all this data is just kind of incredible. Um, and then on top of that, um, yeah, it's like almost something out of physics. It's like uh, you have an equation to predict what a data point should be, and he actually calculates the data points, and uh, with very tiny deviations, they fit uh, the predictions. And yeah, and so I, I think what both you guys are alluding to here is like it's an extremely... I mean, this is what I've heard from multiple yeah. people yeah. independently, I would guess, that um, they look at it, this perfect straight line, and then they say, I don't really believe that. There must be something wrong. But... <laughs> But, but I don't know what it is. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what it is. Yeah. It doesn't match our intuition, right? Yeah. 
It doesn't match our intuition. But science sometimes doesn't match our intuition, mm. you know, in terms of, like, I mean, that's, that's why it works, in a way. That's why we do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to do the science. I mean, I would say this. I mean, I would say that Greg has um, written and presented germs of this recent work over the past, I don't know, like, eight years or so. And um, this point came up even then. Uh, like, then, well, it seems that the basic idea here requires very strong assertive mating that mm -hmm. is possible or has been observed for any phenotype. And so it must, it must, it must clearly be wrong. But, uh, but the interesting thing is that there's a lot of GWAS of educational attainment and we've social both, class. We've both done, done them ourselves. Yes, yeah, so we've both worked on them ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, even though there's still some lingering uncertainty because of these um, indirect genetic effects Alex was talking about, uh, uh, population stratification, um, all this gobbledygook that just means that these estimated genetic scores or values of fathers and mothers can't perhaps be taken totally at face value. But if we do take them at face value, basically the tendency of all this work uh, over the past eight years since Greg st first started presenting ideas has been to raise our estimates of how much assorted mating there is between um, this latent or underlying social class phenotype. Well, so from the... And so basically, yeah. um, I would say that relative to where our prior was maybe eight years ago, uh, the actual evidence that has come in since then has basically moved us in Greg's direction. Okay, so, so to summarize, okay. if we directly do <laughs> GWAS of years of education, which is one of Greg's phenotypes, yeah. and we calculate these genetic scores of actual individuals, which we can do by just, um, if we have their genetic data, just get a prediction of their genetic prediction of years of education. We can calculate predictions between uh, fathers and mothers, spouses, uh, and they are, in fact, fairly high, higher than you would expect by just say, the observed level of matching between years of education. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I remember that from your paper in our podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's, right? So it's just like, it's, there's something going on there. It's like you can smell, I, you can smell the alleles. I, this, <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I don't think we fully understand it yet, but there, there, is conver there are converging lines of evidence that there's very high correlation between parents for the underlying factors both genetic and cultural, perhaps, that affect education and are passed on to, to children. So this Clark's paper, there was also another paper that came out in an economics journal recently by Collado, uh, looking at Swedish register data. And they also observed the same thing as Clark in that there's this remarkable persistence of correlation in education as you go to really distant relatives. And that can only really be explained by this kind of assortative mating and some sort of transmission from parents to offspring. But the criticism people have made of Clark's, which is, is somewhat valid, is that it could be cultural transmission as well as genetic transmission. I don't think his work completely rules out cultural transmission, but it does, the fact that this simple genetic model fits so well makes a pretty strong argument that genetic transmission and assortative mating is like the primary thing going on. But there can also be cultural transmission too. And the combination, joint genetic and cultural transmission combined with assortative mating, that can, that can be a, a quite general model that we can really explain intergenerational inequalities with if we can fit all of those parameters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so you know, you're talking about like the two-parameter model and 
why it's like amazing and cool. Like just to, just for the listeners and viewers out there without a STEM background, you know, um, there is no you know it's not like a, it's not like nature's law or God's law that more parsimonious models are the true models or the better models. But you know, you want to go for the more parsimonious. Mo- I mean, when it's a simple, elegant model, you know, scientists are attracted to that because you know, those are usually the better ones. Like, if you just add a bunch of parameters and you're overfitting, and it's just, like, it's not, they're not robust, you know? So, like, this goes back to, like, the whole Copernicus versus, you know, heliocentric models. Some of those heliocentric models were really good at predicting, but they weren't really robust. They didn't map reality, and that's why they ditched them for a heliocentric model, which eventually, you know, Kepler and others, like, fixed like, a little of the issues with that, right? Um, so this is, like, a stylized fact that's just kind of lurking here. Uh... I guess the issue here with culture, Greg looked at England. If it is true, if this is replicated in other societies, I guess it could be culture, but my intuition is culture, a group-level culture, is there's much more variation in that. Mm -hmm. And so I would be very, very confused as to why the value would be the same. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, or the dynamics, yeah. the pattern of intergenerational... Well, I think if you were looking at, like... I mean, this other study that I was talking about that's from Sweden, or a lot of the genomic data is from the UK, or... So, I mean, we're not we're not looking at... I, I guess there is this, this China work that, that Clark has, has done, which I don't know so much about, but I, I don't think it's implausible that there could be similar cultural transmission of education in different societies as well as genetic transmission. My guess is that the cultural transmission component, and I've been doing some research along these lines trying to detect that using genetics, which maybe sounds counterintuitive, but you can use genetics as an instrument to actually measure transmission from parents to offspring through the environment. But I think that's probably a smaller, there probably is non-zero, but it's probably much smaller than the, the, the less important than the, than the genetic transmission. In most cases. All right, so, um, you know, as we're winding down here, like, uh, you know, and we've dug deep into the science. I really love this, and I hope I hope everyone out there has really loved this. There's going to be a lot of links in the show notes, and, uh, you know, it, it, the truth is out there. You know, like, go seek it out. Uh, you know, we have so many um, resources that, I mean, even when we were kids, they weren't out there. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, mm-hmm. Falconer and all these things, they're, they're expensive, they're hard to get. Now all these papers are open access. There's free online population genetics uh, textbooks out there. I think like, uh, uh, Graham Coop has one, Felsenstein has one. There's others out there, right? Uh, but um, but there was a huge blowback on social media on the X website. Sorry, I gotta say that. You know, <laughs> like it might be by the time this podcast is out, it might be Alpha or some other. You know, who knows? You know, I'm sorry, Elon. I don't know, like you know, your whims, bro. But um, so, but there was a massive blowback, but. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I didn't really pay attention. The usual sus- suspects are angry. Like, what are they angry about? Like, what's, what's so enraging? Well, I think pe- people are upset at the suggestion that basically all intergenerational social inequalities can be explained by genetic transmission plus a sort of an assortment process in marriage and that higher status people tend to marry other people with high status because it doesn't really leave much room for environment and for whatever reason environmental effects are given a better moral valence than genetic effects because i think people think that they're more modifiable although that's sort of an unproven thing um you know i guess people were maybe a little taken aback at just how how um 
strong the 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 results were and they wanted to argue against them and say well you know this fits so well but actually it could all just be like cultural cultural transmission which is true uh, in theory, but you'd basically have to have a cultural transmission process that almost exactly mimics Mendelian inheritance, and there's no reason why culture should mimic genetics so closely. So I think a lot of the argument, there, w there was a valid question to say, well, he hasn't really proven that it's genetics, but I think the level of hostility to the paper was was probably driven more by people have an attachment to environmental explanations rather than genetic ones for whatever emotional or ideological reasons. Okay. I mean, I, I'm just, you know, I'm trying to, like, you know, get people to understand it, because it was pretty out of control. Yeah, I feel like the level of hostility was a little un unwarranted. I mean, I'm all for robust debate and, and making well, criticisms. This is Twitter but or X or whatever we're talking about, so it's sometimes yeah. hard to know well, what is the real importance of yeah. something that's going on there. Well, but, were were but, people yeah. a little bit more calm privately? Like, I know that you have colleagues that you talk to face-to-face. -face and... Um... I don't know, to be honest. Uh, most most of what I hear about from what people think is from X, Twitter, whatever. Like, say it doesn't matter, but I think it does actually matter because that's what people see, right? That's that they're, they're the things. Most people don't read the paper. Actually, that's one thing I've noticed. It's like I write a tweet thread about my paper. Way more people read that than read the paper. So you can argue that the yeah. social media stuff doesn't matter, but. I think it does matter for the public perception of the, of the research and of the field. And I think there was definitely a push to kind of trash the paper, actually, and say that it was all nonsense and that it had, like, bad intentions, which I think was pretty unfair just because of the the amount of work in, and uh, the amazing data set that had been collected. And he, he's made that data publicly available, and people were just not really appreciative of that, which I thought was, was quite Didn't unfair. some people like, create like an alternative model? And... Yeah, so there was there were some people looking at alternative models, and those models are kind of similar to models that go back, actually, to the work of... So one of the originators of modern population genetics, Cavalli Sforza, uh, he wrote these papers in the 70s with Mark Feldman, another yeah. important population geneticist, and they developed these models of gene culture co-inheritance and gene culture. They were influential in the field yeah. of gene culture co-evolution. I mean, they created, they, cre they helped and, create the field of cultural evolution. Yeah, yeah, and then some other people, Clonin some other people, Cloninger, Rice, and Reich, also in the 70s, they kind of created slightly more sophisticated versions of those models where you have uh, you can have a, a, a general cultural value of your parents that is transmitted to your offspring. And, and you can set up the parameters of the cultural transmission model to be like exactly the same, basically, as Mendelian inheritance. Yeah. But there's no real reason for that to be the case. And actually, one of the markers uh, of cultural transmission that we might expect to see is asymmetries between parents. So if your education depends on what your parents do to you in the environment, there's no reason why the effect of the father and the effect of the mother should be the same. Yeah. Whereas Mendelian inheritance is always symmetrical yeah, between exactly, parents. Exactly. It's way apart it's, from the sex chromosome, obviously, uh, and, and the mitochondria. But um, so so basically, if you see these asymmetries in the correlation between yeah. the father and the offspring and the mother and the offspring, then that is pretty strong. That that can't be due to genetic transmission. And actually, what Clark showed in his paper is for wealth. There's a much stronger correlation from the father, father's wealth than from the mother's wealth. 
that and makes that makes sense. sense because wealth, especially in the time period the clock state is sort of covering. Yeah, it's covering you know inheritance from the from the father who is holding probably almost all the family's wealth in most families. Yeah. So you see a clear cultural transmission of wealth. It's less clear in in the other the other outcomes he looks at. You don't see this asymmetry. In the Swedish register paper I was talking about, they do actually observe some slight asymmetries in the parent-offspring correlations, dependent on both the sex of the offspring and the parent. So that's indicative that there is some, very few things that are ever truly zero, right? So I think there is some true cultural transmission for some things, like how far you go in school, that's my, that's my guess. But they're, they're smaller, it's a smaller effect than, than genetic transmission. And the, mm. the genetic transmission model is, is, is doing a very good job of explaining at least the correlations yeah, of me, Clark has. Uh, I'll let you, uh, yeah. but like, let me just say really quickly about the asymmetry, because it's, it's, inter- it's an interesting point. Um, you know, we're speaking English, uh, you know, Indo-European languages, and for listeners and viewers out there, they've you know had you know they listened to David Anthony probably on this podcast and uh, you know read some of my stuff. A lot of the Indo-European expansions, uh, if you look at the genetic data, they're male mediated, mm. right? Uh, in terms of it's like overwhelmingly like male Indo-European Y chromosomes. So for example, I don't know like the globular amphora culture, Latin Neolithic culture in Poland was absorbed uh, by the corded ware. It's twenty five percent of the ancestry. It seems to be overwhelmingly female. So they're like local women that were absorbed. Uh, but what language did they speak? They almost certainly spoke a post-Yamnaya language. What gods did they worship? Uh, they worshiped the Yamnaya gods. There were some modifications. They picked up words for agriculture, it seems like from the globular amphora, from those women. So it's not an exclusive, like 100% asymmetry. Mm-hmm. But you see in these cultural, cultural transmissions yeah. Um, yeah. cases where it's overwhelmingly from one side or the other. Yeah, yeah. There are some cultures where, you know, there's some societies where People tend to follow their mother's religion more because women are more religious, whatever. It, it can yeah. happen the other way, too. Uh, but so, I mean, cultural transmission is just much, much more... It has much more freedom. It's less constrained. Yeah, it's way it's less, way, yeah. Genetic transmission is very constrained. Yeah. We know, we understand it very well. Yeah. 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 So what do, you, what, do you, what do you think, James? Just what do you, like, after you listen to that? Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um... I mean that that's actually that's actually why um, this path analysis that Sewell Wright invented uh, works so well in genetic contexts. But then there have been times when economists and sociologists have to try to apply them to other contexts and isn't worked arguably as well. The reason why it works so well in genetics is that it is so constrained, and yeah. many of the coefficients, their values, can be deduced from genetic theory, like. Um, the path from a parent's genotype to an offspring genotype has to be half, and there are all these symmetries um, through the paternal and maternal lines and so on, uh, which means that in the equations there's all these halves and twos and things like that. But anyway. Yeah. Um, and um, and yeah, that's what I would say is kind of very surprising and fascinating about Clark's work is that... Um, is that the, he seems to be revealing this amazing simplicity, um, whatever the explanation is, even mm-hmm. if it's some kind of hybrid genetic or cultural explanation, there's just this amazing regularity that uh, with which it operates. And, yeah. Um, and e- even that is, uh, whatever the underlying explanation may be, is, is by itself pretty surprising and thought-provoking. Yeah. 
Well, uh, we've had a lot of uh, thought thought provoking. Uh, I think. Uh, comments here thought or thought provoking or thought triggering or triggering i don't know uh, we'll see <laughs> we'll see what the reaction to this is uh, so i just want to close out um what are you guys looking forward to like what's going on with you guys like you and then you let's do it yeah uh well i i think the future is very bright for this line of research actually i think it's a really exciting time there's stuff that people people like Greg Clark and other economists are doing, and that's more the phenotype level looking deeper in time or, or using these registers where you can, you can look at really uh, distant relatives and things like that. So the, the data on that side is, is becoming really well developed at the same time as the genomic data is, is becoming much better developed and our methodologies are becoming. So I'm mainly developing the sort of methodologies for the genomic data side of things, but I think what I'm excited to see is say we come back, imagine we come back in 10 years to have this conversation. I actually think a lot of these things that we're talking about that we're still a bit confused about, like missing heritability, like what's the true heritability of so-and-so, what are the causes of intergenerational inequalities? I actually think a lot of these problems are gonna be pretty settled in 10 years. That's my prediction. Okay. Uh, maybe we can come back in 10 years to see maybe if I'm right. Linear model of uh, growth <laughs> in scientific knowledge, you know, so we'll see. What about you, James? Um, well, I'd say the main project I've been working on is um, a book about um, the evolution of sexual reproduction. Okay. Um, so we've been talking about various things that are related to sexual reproduction, like how at every site, you actually have two genes, one from each of your parents, and then when you form your own uh, gametes or sperm or egg cells, it's a random member of that pair that goes, and all these symmetries through maternal and paternal lines and so on. But, but all these things assume that, um, that we're talking about a sexually reproducing species. Yeah. And um, there's a fundamental question about why sexual reproduction even exists, because... Um, because you could imagine that, uh, why don't I just um, uh, produce, butt off a little clone of myself when I'm like 45 and I have tenure and it's time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's not, it's not so far-fetched, right? Because yeah. we know monozygotic twins exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can imagine, well, why doesn't a process evolve where you just butt off a monozygotic twin yeah. uh, later in your life cycle? Um, and then we could avoid having to deal with all these difficulties of like uh, finding a partner and uh, you know what, what like we, I, I, that we all some are, people uh, know call them difficulties but I, <laughs> I quite enjoy the process yeah. you know what I'm um, so um, and I just thought that um, and various people have thought about this question over the years including uh, Fisher and uh, other people we've mentioned um, and I felt like that now we, we kind of know the answer, um, yeah. including uh, thanks to GWAS, um, because, um, for example, there was this guy, Kondrashev, who came yeah. up with a theory still about around. why, yeah, he's, he's still active, um, uh, uh, and he came up with a theory about why sexual reproduction could be beneficial. Um, but basically his theory requires that, um, that there be enough variation entering the population each generation by mutation for there to be sexual re uh, you know, sex and recombination to work with, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I think it's pretty clear now that um, with all these traits 
that currently have thousands of sites of the genome affecting them. Yeah. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's yeah. a uh, submerged part of the iceberg, rare variants, things that have not been hit by mutation yet, uh, that we can now guess is in the millions for like a typical trait. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this pretty much seals the case for like, well, it's, it's clear that in eukaryotic species like us, that we really can't dispense with sexual reproduction because of um, all these ev evolutionary parameters that govern our situation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've been working on. I've been sort of diverted and, uh, by that. Thank God we that can't dispense with it. Thank God we can't dispense with it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's how I feel fundamentally. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, we, all, we all agree, right? Okay. <laughs> 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 hey, it's been a couple of hours, okay? It's time to wind down, like break out the whiskey, you know, mm -hmm. to be chill. We're going to be chill out here. So um, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. Um, I think you can tell. I really like talking about this stuff. Like I could go, like I could just do, I could do this all day. You know, I think we could do this all day. Well, maybe not all day. You know, there there is the whiskey whiskey time. You know, um, but these are very very fascinating topics. Like we live in a time where genomics, where the life sciences are moving so fast uh, that you know we live in an age of miracles in a way. You know, I mean the things that we know. Like you mentioned, Kavali Forza. One thing I always say is, you know, his book, The History and Geography of Human Genes. That's like. 50 years, over 50 years of scholarship, and yet, you know, on a thumb drive today, we have orders of magnitude more data. Uh, we can do all of the analyses that Cavalli Forza did in that book uh, within a couple of hours. Like, we really could, you know, max, probably better, you know? Uh, so we have, we have a lot of tools. Um, what we do with it is up to us. Um, I think it's exciting. I hope people are excited. I hope people understand that it's, this comes from a place of wonderment uh, it comes from a place of seeking truth and trying to understand who we are as humans, you know? Um, and um, nature is one, and it's out there. And so we need to go out there and grasp it. And this is what I think these guys are doing. That's why I love them. Um, I love talking to them. I love talking about this stuff. And, um, you know, follow the show notes. Like, check out their work. And um, with that, I'm going to sign off. I think it's the longest episode of unsupervised learning. I think I tried to supervise it a little bit this time, but, you know... Um, you know, we, we got to mix it up sometimes, you know, have a little randomness and stochasticity, you know, be a little protean, otherwise, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get stuck at a local optimum, right? <laughs> All right, thank Shifting you guys. Shifting balance theory of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, listen, cut it right there, cut it right there. Okay, thank you, sirs. All right, okay, we're done. This podcast for kids.